Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is episode 2i, Poets and Archers, part one. Fierce winds blow. They churn the cool ocean, muddying its waters. And huge waves roll with roaring thunder sounds. On the shore, a big-footed pelican searches for fish in the brackish water-filled pits, and then moves away towards the shoreline grove in the west. Crabs play in the fine sand as blowing cold winds erase their footprints in the pure, huge Palmyra grove where your highness is sitting in splendour. In the pavilion, you are seated with wise men and others who live between the cold western, eastern and southern oceans on shores where conch shells blare, and in the huge mountains of great gods, where snakes slither like girls performing the very autumn dances. You are there to listen to the pretty musician, with the bright forehead, the fine teeth, bright smile, nectar-filled red mouth, and gentle swaying walk. Will people think that you, a noble king carrying a shining sword, are a weak man, who is easy to conquer. That poem was from an ancient collection of Tamil poems called the Ten Tens. And the Ten Tens is a sensible name because it contains ten bunches of poems. Each bunch is given by a different poet for a different king. And in each bunch, you've guessed it, there are ten poems. Actually, that's not quite true. We've lost the first bunch of ten and the last bunch of ten now, but once it was true, and it's still called the Ten Tens. And every one of these bunches of ten poems was written about one of the Chera kings. A different ten poems for each different Cheran king. And this is a first of its kind in South Indian history. If you look at all of the other evidence we've got for other lines of South Indian history, other, other dynasties, all we get to know about are isolated stories, isolated poems about this king or that queen, this man or that woman. We don't really know how to piece those stories together. We don't know who's related to who and how. We can make some guesses, but they're just guesses. But the collection of poems called the Ten Tens gives us for the first time in South Indian history the stories of whole families of kings, whole dynasties of Cherans. So the original plan behind this episode was to take a look at the Cherans. It was going to be our third and final special episode on South India, and it was also going to be the last episode in this series of the podcast. So much for my plans, because unfortunately, I got a little bit excited and I recorded too much to put into a single episode. So I've taken the episode and I've split it into two parts. Actually, I'm quite keen to get this series finished and get on to the next series because I'm so excited about the Guptas. So I'm going to make both parts of the episode available at the same time. And the upshot of that, if you're not listening as these episodes are released, is that this is pretty much just one episode that's cut into two parts. So if you're a die-hard Chera fan, you can certainly listen to these episodes back to back, and they should form a fairly seamless whole. So in this, the first part of the episode, we're going to start by taking a look at the land of the Cheras, and Kerala in particular. Then we'll look at the first Chera dynasty from the Ten Tens. And we're going to take a look at them from the inside, so to speak. We're going to look at the court history of the dynasty, as seen perhaps by the kings themselves. In the second part, the next episode, we're going to take a look at the second Chera dynasty from that Ten Tens collection. But we're going to be looking at them 
from the outside, so to speak. We'll take a look at the, the Cheren kings through the eyes of outsiders, people beyond Cheren lands, even people beyond any of the three crown kingdoms of South India. We'll hear what the Cherens did to them, and also what they did for the Cherens. But that's for later. Let's start with part one. Kerala, land of the Cheras. It's a place that's so distinctive, you can even see it marked out from space, separate from the rest of South India. Well, actually, to be honest, I've never been to space, but it must be true because you can definitely see it in the satellite photos. It's that deep green band running down the southwest coast of India. And the ribbon is such a rich green because it's so fertile. Down there, the coconut trees go thick and tall. And there are huge bundles of bamboo and spices too. The coconuts have been important for Kerala culture. In fact, if you're ever eating South Indian food and you want to know what part of South India it came from, check to see if it's got coconut oil in it. If it has, then probably it's from Kerala. And it's not just food that coconuts have been important for. One of the major industries down there is making ropes by twisting coconut fibre around itself. It can be done by hand or with a small little motor twirling a stick. Since ancient times, Kerala has been known not just for coconuts, but especially for spices. An ancient Roman source marks it out as famous for its pepper. But there's plenty of nutmeg and cardamom down there too. And cinnamon trees too. I mean, really amazing cinnamon. Not the sort of cinnamon you can buy in the supermarkets in the West. The sort of cinnamon where you go up to the tree, you peel off a bark layer, you plump it straight in your mouth. And it's more fiery than a ginger beer, but it's got this tremendous depth of flavour that seems to go all the way down. And in amongst all these plantations and all these fields, run the backwaters. The backwaters are a network of connected rivers and canals. They stretch down for quite a lot of Kerala. They wind their way through villages, past the back of people's houses. Down on the plains of Kerala, water seems to be everywhere. It seems to be a part of life. Actually, water's right there in the stories of Kerala's creation. The stories start with a chap called Rama with an Axe. Uh, that's what the name translates as, roughly. And Rama with an Axe was an oddity. He was born a Brahmin, but he had the characteristics of a Shastriya warrior. He didn't get on very well, though, with the Shastriyas. The sons of one of the great Shastriyas stole his father's cow. And that started a feud between the families, which escalated until finally the sons killed his father. Rama with an axe was not happy, understandably. It wasn't just a one-off, though. The whole of the Shatra caste had become corrupt. So Rama with an axe put his name to good use. He took his axe and he exterminated the Shastras. Twenty-one times over, he wiped them out. Sometime after that, he took his axe and he threw it into the sea, and where it fell, Kerala arose out of the waters. There are many more stories about Rama with an axe. Some of them more famous than the ones I've given, but that's the Carolyn one. So on the plains, you have the backwaters, and from there, rivers wind up into the mountains. Now, the mountains are part of Kerala too, the Western Guts. Western Guts means something like Western Steppes, and they line up parallel to the coast. And in the western edge, the part that's in Kerala, they're also very fertile. Kerala nowadays is a modern state in the modern-day country of India. It roughly corresponds to the region of ancient Kerala. 
Amongst modern Carolans, the state is justly praised for its primary education. It's still got the highest literacy rate in India, though um, I bumped into some Carolan academics a couple of days ago who told me that their advanced education, their universities, they're running a bit behind in their opinion. Amongst tourists, the, the state of Kerala is known for its backwaters. You can take gentle trips on boats for a few days through the backwaters. And I can highly recommend both the bookshops and the backwaters of Kerala. But enough about modern Kerala. Our interest is in ancient Kerala. One of the great cities of ancient Kerala was Vanji. It was built down by the coast, where the backwaters start, near the modern-day city of Kochi. It was a pretty standard fort city of South India, from the sounds of it. It was surrounded by a forest. In this case, the forest was probably planted artificially for the purposes of protecting the city, and in amongst the forest would be soldiers guarding it. Beyond the forest, there was a clear area, and then a defensive moat. The defensive moat would have been a beautiful thing, filled with fish and lotus flowers. Actually, it was more than a moat. It had more than defensive purposes, because it was also a drain. The people of the city had a bath, or when they used water in their rituals, or any other water, it would be swept into a sluice, and it would flow down into the moat. Beyond the moat, tall walls of stone or brick would rise, and on top of the walls there would be weapons for firing arrows or stones, or pouring molten iron on attackers. Beyond the walls, the streets of the city itself, the soldiers living on the outskirts, then towards the middle, four streets of Brahmins, advisers and servants to the king, and then, right in the heart, the palace itself. Just behind that were the elephant stables. the Chera are closely connected with Kerala. In fact, Chera and Kerala are probably just two different ways of saying the same word. And the first time that the Cheras appear on the stage of history, they're not called the Cheras, they're called the Sons of Kerala. But in fact, the ancient Cheras ruled much more than just modern-day Kerala. They pushed up in land, into the mountains towards modern-day Tamil Nadu, and they also pushed north and south, up and down the coast. Kerala might not even have been the place where the Cheras originally came from, their original homeland. Though, by the time we're interested in, around the early centuries AD, Kerala is certainly their stronghold. The story of our Cheran dynasty starts at one of the great events of ancient South Indian history, the Battle of Veni. Everybody was there. Each of the three crown kings of South India, the kings who between them ruled South India for almost all of its history, the Jolas, the Pandyas, and the Jeras. And others were there too, kings and chieftains of smaller lands that lay between and around the three great powers. The Battle of Veni was a lopsided battle. On the one side was the Cholan king, and on the other side was pretty much everybody else. And unfortunately for everybody else, it was the Cholan king who won. Now, our Cheran king, seeing the way the battle was going, seeing he was about to lose, he turned his chariot around and he fled. And as his chariot pulled away from the battle, he was wounded in the back. That's a great shame for a warrior, a huge embarrassment. So he stopped the chariot. He stepped down. He sat in the mud of the battlefield. He faced the north and he starved himself to death. Probably the first bunch of poems in the 1010 collection was written for that Charon King. But we're not really sure because it's since been lost. Before he died, 
The king had two sons, and they ruled after him. The older son was called Nedon. He's got other names too. One of them was he who had the Himalayas for his bounty, which sounds less of a mouthful in Tamil, I'd guess. And he earned that name by supposedly fighting his way all the way up to the Himalayas, destroying the Aryan, the northern Indian kings, and then carrying on past these slopes of deer dreaming in the moonlight, past broad waterfalls, up to the rock face of the Himalayas itself. And on the Himalayas, he's said to have carved a great bow. Now, the bow, the bow and arrow, was the symbol of the Cheras, hence the title of this episode, Poets and Cheras. The story of Nedun going all the way up to the Himalayas is a little bit of a reach, perhaps, literally. There's just no trace of a southern invader getting that far north. No southern king's power seemed to have stretched that far. But even if it's a legend, it gets some things right. Nedun was always away from home on business, and his business was conquering. Nedun spent literally years at a time out on campaign, staying with his army in camp somewhere or other in southern India. The poems about Nedun have these wonderful windows onto life on campaign, life in military camp. For example, it's said that his soldiers used fortune-telling to detect enemy movements. They had knicker beans and they threw them. For those in Europe or America, knicker beans are about the size of a conker, maybe a little bit smaller, and they come in a spiky case, a bit like a conker. Everywhere in many different cultures, knicker beans are associated with luck and good fortune, although I've been completely unable to tell how to use them to predict the whereabouts of my enemies. The poem leaves it a bit mysterious. Another poem talks about Nedun's wife. To put it mildly, she gets upset with Nedun's long absences from the palace whilst he's away on battle or campaign. The poet puts it much better than I could. Your chaste and humble wife. Speak sweetly with a smile, even when there is discord between the two of you. She, with the nectar-filled red mouth, calm appearance, bright forehead and delicate walk, thinks of you and grieves when you are away from her. So, Nedon was spending a lot of time conquering. And how much did he achieve all that time spent? Well, honestly, we don't know. He doesn't seem to have conquered far inland into the mountains in the centre of southern India. His greatest conquests may have appeared up and down along the coast, because the poems about Nedon sing about him sailing to victory. And they also talk about how he captured some Greek merchants, and he took their ships full of luxuries and kept them for himself. Diamonds, precious stones, and that sort of thing. The Greeks he captured, apparently, were unkind. And they also had a harsh language. We know from last episode that having a harsh language is a sign of all sorts of degenerate things. What Nedon did to the Greeks, though, also seems pretty harsh. He tied their hands behind their backs, and he had oil poured over their heads. It sounds like a sort of oily waterboarding. So Nedon took control of some Greek ships. Maybe there was a bit of raiding going on to help the family coffers. Also, perhaps he took control of those ports that the Greek ships pulled in at. Those ports had a great deal of economic influence from trade. The great trading city of Missouris could have been one of them. For centuries, Missouris was the most important Indian port for Greek and Roman vessels, both in the north and in the south. Where exactly the port was, and what it was like, those are currently matters for debate. And when I say currently matters for debate, I mean very current. 
There's been some new evidence and info coming out over the past months. It's even been in the newspapers. So I'm not actually going to cover Missouri's in this episode. My plan is to wait until the historical dust settles a little bit and then have a special all about the port in the next series. Nedun had a younger brother called Kutavan. Kutavan was also called of the many elephants, presumably because he had many elephants. And he had many elephants because he had a breeding programme. It produced these huge black bull elephants, and they were covered in fine ornaments, and they were trained for war. Kutavan worked on the other side of the Cheren kingdom from his brother. If Nedun was out at sea or campaigning up and down the coast, his brother Kutavan was pushing the might of the Cheras inland. So Kutavan summoned his army. His war drum beat out loud to bring them together. The elephants were there, of course, and alongside them horses with colourful plumes on their head. Chariots with curtains, beautiful curtains hung off of them. I honestly don't know what the curtains were for, but they were there. Alongside the elephants and the chariots were infantry, armed with a shield and a sword, and perhaps also a throwing spear. They were wrapped around in protective skins. Even the scabbards of the infantry are said to have been made of tiger skin. So he summoned his army, and he took them up into the mountains, into Kongu country. For those who know modern India, that's the Nilgiri Hills, Coimbatore and beyond. The poems describe it as a dry land, high up in the hills. It said that wells had to be dug out of the dry earth, just so that cattle and people could drink. And the people didn't live on agriculture, on arable work, they lived on cattle herding. Up in amongst the hills of Congo country, there was a great fortress, the Akapa Fortress. And like the other city we've already described, it was surrounded by protective forests. Those were no trouble for Kutavan, of course, because he had elephants, and elephants love pushing down trees. So the elephants just forced their way through the forests. And then he came to the fortress. On the moat, there were boats full of archers. He had those wiped out. And then he came to the walls with their gargantuan gates reinforced with wooden beams. He pushed through these, battering them down, and went into the town beyond with its sky-high houses. In the space of a day, Kutavan of the many elephants captured the great fortress and burnt it down. He left it a complete ruin. As the poet puts it, Before your army went there, Women wearing bangles leaned their large rice-pounding pestles on banana trees and plucked fallow flowers. Young girls wearing white conch bangles chased white storks. And there were endless festivities in the land. Artists created lovely music in many tunes with their lute strings and sang and danced in public places and streets from big towns. All of this was ruined by you in battle. They are pitiful now. So Kutavan ravaged the land, but he wasn't just a conqueror. He was going to rule this land, so he divided it up and made it part of the Cheran territory. And then he performed a ceremony. He gathered water from the east and west oceans, and in one day brought them there to the centre of South India, declaring his power to do so, his spread of his reach being so large. Perhaps it was about this time that another great city in Cheren lands was founded, 
near the place where two great rivers come together on an elevated patch of land not so far from Congo country. It was built apparently on exactly the model of the old Cheren capital down on the coast. It was even supposed to have been called the same name, Vanji or Karor. Some people say it's the same as the modern city of Karor, which is really quite a way over to the east of the territory that Kutavan was conquering. In fact, historians can't agree much about this. Some historians think that there were two cities where one was a copy of the other. Some historians think that there was only one city and people just got a bit confused later on in history. If I had to make an educated guess, I would guess that there were two cities. And that's because of how things worked in the Cheren family. We call Nedun and Kutavan kings. But that title can be a bit misleading because in English we expect a king to be a monarch, a sole ruler. That just wasn't what the concept meant in ancient India. You could have lots of kings ruling one territory together. The voters in a republic, for example, they were all kings, they were all rajas. Another way of ruling in ancient India, of having many kings, was rule by clan. This is talked about in the ancient manual on statecraft, the Shastra. The idea here is that the country is taken on as a sort of family business, a family estate. The family run it as a whole. There might be a patriarch in the family, but he's not supreme in quite the way a king is. Different members of the family might have total responsibility over different parts of the business. This is not so much a line of kings as a pyramid. So Nedun and Kutavan might have ruled at the same time. There's a version of the story in which that's not true, in which Nedun was a viceroy for his father, and then he inherited the crown. And then he ruled for quite a long time, 50 years or so, and passed on the crown to Kutavan. But now we know there's another way of telling that story. Nedun and Kutavan might have been kings together, not rival kings, but ruling the Cheren territory at the same time. So whilst Nedun was conquering up and down the coast, his little brother could have been taking elephants up into the mountains. Running the Cheren kingdom together as a family interest, much like brothers can run a shop together. Neither being the viceroy, neither being the supreme king. And I quite like this second family business version of the story. It fits with the fact that Nedun and Kutavan were known for conquering different areas. But more importantly, there are just too many Cheren kings mentioned in the poems who all seem to be around at the same time. Whatever the balance of power between Nedun and his brother, in the next generation it was Nedun's children who rose to the top who became the most famous. Nedun had married a Velier princess. The Veliers, by the way, they were people who were collected in small kingdoms or tribes that lived in the spaces between the three great crown kingdoms of South India. The Veliers were famous, usually, for their skill in battle. And two of Nedun and the Veliers' princesses' sons became kings, famous enough to have their poems sung in the Ten Tens. The first of these had the unlikely name of the king with a crown with a blueberry fascinator and a fibrous patch. I mean, really, that was his name, or thereabouts. Perhaps he earned the name. Certainly, he seems to have actually gone around wearing a crown made of fibre with a blueberry fascinator. 
Though if you're thinking that means he was a poor king or he was humble, think again, because the crown might have been made out of fibre, but it was studded with pearls. And it had gold in there too, inlaid with beautiful gems. So King Blueberry Fibre Crown was hardly roughing it. Still, there's no clue as to why he wore the strange crown. I suppose it's just about possible that the crown came after the name, and his parents just had a wicked sense of humour and gave him a name which forced him to wear it. If the poems are anything to judge by, King Blueberry Fibre Crown had that peculiar combination of nobility and bloodthirstiness that makes up the chivalrous mind. The nobility is definitely there. The poems talk of his men never attacking people who run away. And they talk about how he cared for the people he conquered. The people he conquered, of course, hated him, and they failed to show him respect, but he didn't just wipe them out. He didn't even leave their country a complete mess. Instead, he arranged matters so the land wasn't destroyed, so they had enough to eat and get by, so they could rebuild. You don't live for yourself, the poet sings to King Blueberry Fiber Crown. And even soldiers who follow your lead are generous to others. So King Blueberry Fiber Crown's got this noble side, but alongside the poems talking about that, there are these grisly poems. Vultures picking at dead bodies. Headless corpses wandering battlefields. One, one poem talks about blood flowing like rivers. Another compares the battlefield to the twilight skies, red right across them. And ghouls dance with joy, feasting on all of it. King Blueberry Fibre Crown was not easy on his enemies. His enemies seem partly to have been internal. There's talk of a pretender to the chair and crown, and King Blueberry Fibre Crown roundly beat him and sent him running away in fear. But King Blueberry Fibre Crown also had enemies outside, and he turned his armies northwards towards the city of Mysore, or rather where the city of Mysore now stands, and there he fought and he beat an enemy king. Now many kingdoms in ancient India had a sacred tree. The sacred tree was kept in the courtyard of the palace or tucked away somewhere safe in the capital, and it was looked after very carefully because it represented the royal dynasty themselves. To lose your sacred tree was the same as losing your king. And when you think about it, that changes politics somewhat because it makes your capital city, where the tree is, all the more important. You can't just abandon your capital. You can't just take your sacred tree and run off up to the hills when the cheras come because, well, it's a tree and you can't just pick up a tree. Well, King Blueberry Fibre Crown got his army into the enemy capital and right up to the enemy's tree. And then he took some elephants and he tied it to the tree. And that can't have done it any good. As I said before, elephants have a lovely glee when they're destroying trees. Elephant bells that were attached to them must have been ringing as they pushed and shoved the tree to the ground. The tree was destroyed. The enemy had been beaten completely. King Blueberry Fibre Crown must have fought other kings too and beaten them, although we don't know who they were. Because, like quite a lot of the kings were mentioned in this episode, he was an Adiraja, and he wore the Adiraja's necklace of seven crowns, taken from seven kings he had beaten. King Blueberry Fibre Crown had a brother, and his brother was also a great conqueror. I wish I could report that he had an equally tickling name, King Fuzzy Flowered Crown or something, 
Sadly, I can't. His name was Shengu Tuvan. According to the poems, though, his soldiers did wear fuzzy flowers. They picked them from these delicate vines, right between terrifying their enemies and being awarded with prizes of elephants from their king. Now, this king, like his brother, was an Adi Raja. He wore that necklace of seven crowns from the kings he'd beaten in battle. Though, actually, to be honest, we don't know the details of which kings he beat, there was a conquest that he undertook that had a huge impact on everyday life in South India. And the conquest was actually not against one of the South Indian kings, it was up north. He fought a North Indian, an Aryan army. And it was led by an Aryan king of great renown, though apparently not quite enough renown to actually be given his name in the poem. The poem describes an expedition, but this wasn't your usual, I'll go and invade the north to show how mighty I am, expedition. It wasn't even about conquering new lands and adding them to the Charan kingdom. This expedition was all about a stone, a great block, taking, taken through the winding forest, over the ruins of the defeated army, to the banks of the Ganga, the Ganges. And there, the stone was washed. This stone was to be used to create a statue of the goddess Patini. And in fact, this might have been the point at which the worship of Patini really got started in southern India. It was quickly taken up in the Cholan and Panjian lands too. The kings were often happy about it. Patini was worshipped as the perfect wife. And in fact, we've already had the story of Patini, because Patini was incarnated as Kanagi. And Kanagi appeared in a story in an earlier episode. She was the wife who stuck by her husband through thick and thin. Her husband went off and chased some dancer. She stuck by him. They moved to a new city. Her husband was killed by the king in a case of mistaken identity. Kanagi got the king to kill himself out of sorrow. Telling the story of the Charon kings is wonderful because we have these great poems about them. And the poems, as you could tell from this episode, really don't give us many details about historical events. The greatest battles appear, but lots of battles get missed entirely. You're pretty much as likely to hear the story of two common folk getting married as you are of an important royal alliance. But the poems are intimate where normal history is not. They give us something of the character of the king they are about. Actually, maybe that's not quite right. Perhaps it's not the character of the king so much as the character the king aspires to. The chivalry of this king, the immense generosity of that king. Take, for example, the brother of King Blueberry Fibercrown. The poems make that king sound like a little bit of a softy, or at least sensual, almost reticent to fight, though he was good at fighting if he wanted to. In your palace, your women with soft spreading hair on which striped bees swarm rest their heads on your chest, with dried sandal paste removing coloured decorations, as you lie with them on your soft bed. With intense desire in your heart, you spend the night in the tradition of love, embracing them close to your chest until the early morning hours arrive. In battle camps, in your hated enemy lands where you desire proud wealth, consumed with anger and with thundering drums and roaring conch shells in the background, your eyes are unable to get small naps. How long before you get sweet small naps, my lord? 
I'm never quite sure if that's what the king wants to be or that reflects what the king actually is. I suppose it might be something else. It might be telling us more about what the poet thinks is worthwhile. I suppose probably it's a mixture of all three. The poet trying to work out what the king's like and what the king actually aspires to. And that's always going to be covered, coloured by what the poet honestly thinks is praiseworthy. Somewhere, you hope, in amongst all the glamour, the bloodshed and the beautiful words, small traces of the real person peek out. One way of finding out is checking what the poets themselves were like. What the poets did, what the poets valued. And whether the poets praised different kings in the same way, or whether they fine-tuned their praise to fit the characters of the kings they met. So I think that's what we'll do. We'll have a close look at the poets themselves. But that's going to be a story for the next episode. Every week we read something from the original sources. We've already done a fair amount of that already this week um, because we've been reading from that collection of poems, The Ten Tens. But I thought we'd step outside of that collection to read another poem. It's a poem that's still in the Sungum era, Sungum collection of poems, so it's got a similar feel and style, but it's by the great poet Capilla. And it's about the first king in the dynasty we've been talking about in this episode. That's the king who had ten poems written about him in the Ten Tens, but those ten poems were lost. It's also the king who was killed because he was shot in the back at the Battle of Veni, and he was so ashamed that he got off and he starved himself to death. So it's got a little bit of irony that this poem is about how amazing this king is and how he never turns away in battle. It goes like this. Kings who protect the earth praise him. He will not share his country with others. Goaded by the thought that he rules too little land. His motivated mind is uncontrollable. He is greatly generous. O oh sun, which goes rapidly in circles, how can you compare yourself to Cherilatan with a murderous army that fights battles? Your limits are daytimes. You leave showing your back. You come from different directions and hide behind the mountains. You spread your many rays and glow during the day in the wide, vast sky. That's it for this week. Um, no, it's not. There's going to be another episode that's out at the same time as this time. But that's it anyway for that dynasty of the Cheren Kings. I hope you've been enjoying it. And if you have, please consider donating to my wife's charity. That's the Snehal Situ Memorial Fund. Details are on the website and in the description of this podcast. See you soon. Take care. <laughs>